Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. All right, was that a weekend of sports or what? There's an argument to be made that that weekend is the best weekend of sports. And I know you can pick another one, but four divisional playoff games. Now, we'll get two conference games next weekend, but you won't have the NFL on Saturday. And it's better than the wild card because, obviously, the higher-level teams, right? The wild card losers are out. The four teams that get buys are in. And then you throw on it here in the local scene where basketball is such a big deal here. You know, other places it isn't. But here, you had a huge Jazz game, the Jazz winning while Donovan Mitchell isn't playing. He's out sick, and the Jazz are down 15, and they come from behind to win. Bogdanovich was really good. Gobert was really good. Ingles was really good. Those guys had to score a lot of points, and they did it. And they came from 15 down. They got stops. It, it, was, it was a heck of a win. The Utes, the Cougars, the Aggies, the Wildcats, everybody playing college hoops. And there was just there was a lot going on. Let's focus on the NFL right here, though. Most surprising thing of the weekend. Well... When a team gets down by 20 and then wins by 20, that's surprising because it's never happened before. And when a team scores touchdowns on seven straight possessions, that's surprising because that hasn't happened before. 41 unanswered points. The Chiefs go from getting blown out by Houston to blowing them out. And I think we all knew because we've all heard it a million times. Oh, you're down early. You're down big, but it's early. There's a lot of time to come back. We all knew that, but not all at once. Down 24, 28 points in the second quarter. Boom. That was ridiculous. Three points and a little more, or three touchdowns and a little more than three minutes. Mahomes is good, but who knew the Chiefs' defense would go into lockdown mode like that? That was an incredible game. Uh, Great comeback. But I don't know, as surprising that is as it was, how surprised were you that Baltimore got beat by Tennessee? I know I was. They just got completely dominated. The Ravens really weren't in the game. I mean, Tennessee started beating on them early and just beat on them for three hours. It was That was as dominant a road win as you could hope for in the playoffs. I don't know what Tennessee fans hoped for, but they could not have hoped for more than that. And now, you know, it's uh, you're a wild card and... But, you know, they're kind of a wild card with an asterisk. I mean, they're the wild card, so that's a fact. But they change quarterbacks. So that, that first month of the season, they're, they're not that team at all anymore. Now, you can say that about a lot of teams. Uh, but definitely, they're playing with more confidence now. They're better now. With Tannehill, they went 7-3 and three in the road seat in the, uh, at the end in the regular season with him as their starting quarterback. And now they're 2-0 and oh in the playoffs. They've now won 9 out of 12 with him at the starting quarterback. That is not a fluke. You are 9-3. and three. You are good. That is not a hot streak, not a fluke. That is impressive. Now, it was different circumstances because there was injuries, but come on. Are we all not thinking Nick Foles in Philadelphia just a little bit? You can't backdoor it when you're the sixth seed. They took down the perennial champ in New England. They took down the number one seed in Baltimore, and now they go to Kansas City for the two seed. I mean, you can say, oh, they're a nine-win team, and they're a wild card. Man, if you beat the, seed, if you beat the one, two, and three seeds in a row on the road, what's, what's left to say? You deserve to go to the Super Bowl. So I'm looking forward to Tennessee and Kansas City. Even though they aren't really brand names, they don't have a ton of success, Kansas City is hosting the AFC title game for the second time in 50 years. <laughs> second year in a row, but also the second time in 50 years. Uh, and, you know, Tennessee hasn't been to a Super Bowl uh, since Dyson got caught at the one-yard line right at the end of the game, right? Remember that, Kevin Dyson, Clearfield High in the U? And the Rams make the tackle to one with a seven-point lead. 
time runs out and Dyson's at the one-yard line, stretching for the goal line, unable to get there. That was a classic Super Bowl, great finish. And they haven't been back in 20 years. I can't believe that's been 20 years. Anyway, then over in the NFC, you got the classics. I mean, it's just the Packers and the Niners again. I mean, they don't have 20% of the Super Bowl titles, but they're close, right? 10 out of 50, and now we're playing, this would be Super Bowl 54, I think. And they've got nine championships, and they're meeting in the NFC title game. They've had a bunch of good playoff games. T.O. Catch probably being the most memorable of them, but it's not the only time they met in the playoffs. Uh, So this will be good. Um, I I was surprised the point spreads are already – Really not that close. Not that the Chiefs are seven and a half point favorites and the Niners are seven point favorites. So both the home teams by a touchdown, roughly. So anyway, uh, ton of good football. I know Seattle fans are mad because I don't think Green Bay got the first down at the end of the game. I thought they did. Now, when you freeze it, super slow mo, you can convince yourself he was down. I get it was close. Um, the calls go both ways, and, and the Packer fans were red hot about the fumble in the first quarter which they didn't call a fumble, and then they reviewed it and realized it was a fumble, but then they didn't know who had the ball. And the Packers, who just effortlessly went down the field on the opening drive, could have had the ball right back on the Seattle side of the field. Could have really gotten out of hand. But as we learned, you know, any league can be overcome, even 24 to nothing. So who knows, right? Green Bay's moving on. All right, got to move on, too. we got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk some uh, college football. Jay Drew taking a look at a decade of BYU football, and we will do that next. Best of the Jazz postgame show coming up later in the hour as the Jazz come from behind at Washington. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Jay Drew wrote a big retrospective on the weekend. We're going to take a few minutes here, DJ, PK, and talk with Jay about the last decade of Cougar football and the landscape changing here. Here's Jay Drew with PK and I. Jay, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Good to be on today. Thanks for coming on. We wanted to talk to you about the story you wrote about uh, a decade of independence at BYU and the impact on the program. And as soon as I teased that this morning, uh, PK said, well, it's been nine years, but we'll just roll with it. Yeah, that was uh that was mostly it was supposed to be about uh BYU football independent or BYU in the last decade how they did because obviously 2010 they weren't independent but that was part of the decade. So thanks PK for catching that <laughs> uh but 9 out of 10 years you kind of got to go with it. I'm I'm okay with it. You know and I and I read uh yours and Dick and Jeff's piece pieces <clears throat> and, and and my thought is, you know, I see where you guys are going with all that stuff. And for me, my individual thought is, even though it's been nine years, <clears throat> it's still not a long enough sample size because <clears throat> the first couple years, you had Tom had to throw together schedules, speaking of Tom Homo. And so they weren't very good. And then he started getting some bigger name teams. But a lot of those games, he had to start with, we'll play you at your place first. So 
we're getting return visits now, right? So the schedule, you like like this year, the home schedule was pretty good. And then one of the knocks was, well, you lose a couple games and November becomes useless and meaningless and all that. Well, you look at November's schedule next year, and they've got Boise State, San Diego State, Stanford, and I think what one of those is it North Alabama, South Alabama, uh, North Alabama, yeah. yeah. So three out of the four games are against brand name programs for sure. Certainly no worse than what they played when they were in the WAC and Mountain West. So my thought is that there's two divisions of independence before when they first got it, and then now, and so at least schedule wise. To me, in my mind, this is very attractive. Now, I realize it's not exclusively based on schedule, but at least scheduling-wise, if this is the way it's going to be for the next whatever period of independence, that's pretty good. Yeah, I, I, I think if the next whatever, like you said, five years continues like the schedule like it was in even this last year in November, you know, they did have San Diego State to kind of anchor it uh, at the end it was better than say a new mexico state or yeah. or a uh a umass or or, or or something like that uh the year they had the bad year they finished at hawaii which uh playing at hawaii is not a cupcake yeah. they learned in a bowl game so um yeah uh, this coming year they're literally there's one gimme really on the schedule uh and that's uh, like you said north alabama every other game is uh, they could they could lose easily, and so, um, yeah, I think you got to tip your hat to to Tom Homo, who has when he when they went independence, he said it was going to be rough the first few years, and and he was right. But uh, I think he's pretty much delivered on what he said uh, that that they would get some of these teams to come into Lavelle Edwards Stadium and and have a pretty good schedule. It seems like if you go through the decades, there was a time when BYU got all of the best. LDS talent, and they got all of the best in-state talent, and sometimes those two overlap. A lot of times they did, but a lot of times they didn't also, but they did very well in both of those. And then you go each decade, and you see it kind of chipped away, and now here the last few years, we're looking where well, the top 10 kids in the state, they're getting one or two of them. How much of that do you think is because BYU and independent, and how much do you think that's technology changing, it's easier for kids to go away from home, the youths go into the Pac-12, so the youths are getting better kids, and the rest of the Pac-12 is coming in recruiting too, and BYU doesn't control any of that. Yeah, you know, all of the above. In my piece that you guys referenced, I said that I kind of build it on the whole Utah going to the Pac-12. That, in my mind, was the biggest detriment and the biggest obstacle to BYU's progression. And and people would say, well, why? And it's recruiting. Absolutely. You, uh, if BYU and Utah go head-to-head for a recruit in the last five, six years that I've been paying really close attention to it, um, Utah generally gets that player. They've even gone into Utah County and got, um, you know, Britton Covey and um, uh, who's the Hansen. quarterback slash linebacker from American Ch- Fork? Chase uh, Hansen. Yeah, Chase Hansen, and just you can go just on and on, and and uh, Isaac Oziata, uh and just you can just be, uh, Utah's just winning those battles, or out of state teams are winning those battles. Just recently, uh, Virginia got a kid, a four star kid from Colorado, whose father played at BYU, whose brother is currently at BYU. 
and he goes to Virginia, and uh, obviously an LDS kid who's going to go on a mission first. But if BYU wants to compete with the Power 5 teams on their schedule, they've got to somehow reverse that trend and get these these LDS kids, uh, at least a good portion of them, going back to BYU. And right now that's not happening. So I agree completely on that, and I want to delve in beyond Utah because that's just not going to change. They're always going to be there. The conference, speaking of the Pac-12, is always going to come into Utah. We know that. David Shaw looked me in the eye at Pac-12 Media Day and told me, he says, you tell those people that I'm coming to Utah and I'm coming to Utah often. And I took I took a step back. It made me nervous the way he said it. I mean, he was dead serious. But you look at Bronco, uh, who did a masterful job at BYU when they were in the Mountain West his second year. And you referenced it. You know, he starts it off with 11-2, and two, and he goes over a four-year period from 06 to 09. He goes, what, 49 or 43-8 and eight or 9 or something, you know, just – really, really big-time football, and they won three out of the four bowl games they played in against Pac-12 competition, so things were great. Well, then, once they get into the heart of the independence, you know, eight and five was the norm. He uh, finished it up with a nine and four, and so we see Kalani, uh, you know, with a nine and four and an eight, uh, you know, that's the eight and five basically is the top watermark. So, since it's not going to change that they're going to get out on a conference or uh, Utah's going to get out of the Pac-12, what can BYU do? Because I do think it boils down to recruiting to get back some of these kids because I think that's the biggest difference. And it, is it just simply that it is about being in a conference and kids want to play for a conference title? Or what is it? You know, I've thought about that a lot. And I think somehow, some way, they've got to put together a really special season. I think if they go, they put together a 10 and 2, 11 and 1, um, and, you know, and win some of these games and don't lose to the teams that they should beat, which was a problem this past year. Uh, I don't know of any other way to really kind of jump back into the whole conversation. Um, obviously, Utah is the more popular team in the state right now. Um, and I put that in the article. I think that's probably been the case for the past 10 years. And somehow BYU has got to get that ground back. I, I don't know if it's possible, to be totally honest with you. But the, the best way to do that, I think, is, is simply to win. Um, if that's possible, I don't know, based on the, I mean, this, this last recruiting class that came in, they're still again in the 70s um, that was signed in December. Of course, more will sign in February. But um, somehow, some way, they've got to get – um, back in the, you know, more wins. One of the things Tom Homo said in the uh, Q&A that we ran with him, we submitted some questions to him via email, and he, he answered them. Um, one of the things he said is we've got to get uh, difference makers. We've got to get these some of these guys that can just absolutely take over a game, uh, you know, big playmakers and game breakers and Kind of like a Taysom Hill, to be honest with you, a, a generational type player um, that can kind of turn the tide, and and they haven't really been able to do that in the last few recruiting classes. 
So I agree they have to do that, but it's not just a question of beating out the Utes and their popularity. Washington took a really good player out of uh, Utah County. Washington State's taken a couple of good in-state players, including a quarterback out of Lehigh. Uh, Oregon seems to decide who they want every year and come in and grab a guy. And even nationally, LSU comes in and takes a kid out of East High School. So we can all say BYU should do better, but it does seem like a new era. More teams are recruiting nationally. PK can go chapter and verse and all the kids leave in Arizona. And I'm not seeing uh, USC, Texas, and Florida State dominating in their backyards. It seems like a different era, and we can talk about how it was 20 years ago, but it's just not like that for anybody. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, the day and age of the recruiting services, social media, um, easier travel, uh, all of that, uh, you know, lends itself to, to these kids having a lot of uh, options. And uh, and as you said before with the Stanford coach, Utah is not a secret by any stretch anymore. Almost every coach, even Nick Saban, has had Utah on his radar. So uh, Michigan State has been in here getting kids and all, you know, all over the country. So obviously Virginia just got one. He's not from Utah. He's from Colorado, but he's a quasi Utah kid, uh, so to speak. So, yeah, I, I honestly don't know the answer uh, other than if BYU could possibly get into a P5. And, and that's probably the next big step that they would have to take. And we could probably debate that forever, too, is if, if that'll ever happen. I'm kind of skeptical based on kind of the the social or the, the political climate of the United States right now um, and BYU kind of being an outlier as, that, as far as that's concerned. So, um, yeah, I think it's uh, definitely Tom Homo has his work cut out for him and, and really Kalani Sataki and all the BYU administration to, to see if they can get over the hump. But uh, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult. How much do you three do you think the breakthrough and the progress of allowing caffeinated drinks on campus will make a difference? <laughs> oh, huge! You cannot understate that. I think that's on the that's every recruit I've talked to has mentioned it. <laughs> Don't you think? On a serious note, more importantly, that other coaches can't negative recruit with that. It's a weird place. You can't even drink a Coke. You can't drink a Pepsi. You've got to go. You know, caffeine free. It's at least it's one thing they can't say that makes people seem you know really out there. Yeah, one in about what fifty. <laughs> so, one down, yeah, forty nine. I mean, I'm sure they'll find other things. Facial facial yeah. hair and the length of your shorts next. <clears throat> yeah, and, and uh, obviously, uh, one thing I've been hearing lately is that some coaches are bringing up uh, BYU's academic uh, kind of their stringency academic wise and telling kids that that uh, you better be uh, very very good you know in the classroom if you if you're going to survive at BYU I've heard that uh, has kind of come up lately as as uh, maybe a negative recruiting tactic to kind of scare kids away from BYU maybe that's been going on for a while I don't know PK might know more than me but uh, that's uh, lately that's kind of one of the things I've heard 
Well, I think generally it's a disadvantage, but you have to zero in and get these kids that you've been able to get, and that's where it's been hurting them, as DJ referenced earlier, that there's a number of kids that they used to be getting, be able to get, that they can't get, and if you're some of these other schools, if you don't get player X, well, then you just go find player Y, and he ends up being good. Like, for instance, in, in the advantage for BYU, Ben Olsen comes home from a mission, leaves, well, then they go get Max Hall, and Max Hall ends up being the winningest quarterback back in BYU history, so who cares that Ben Olsen didn't go to uh, stay at BYU. You got Max Hall, and Ben had his injury issues, but even if Ben had stayed healthy, you still had a really good quarterback. So you got to find ways to replace those guys, and in, in Provo, it's much harder now than it used to. It's always been difficult, but it's even more difficult now than it used to be uh, as far as that goes. I wanted to ask you about you know, so much speculation around Kalani Sataki. And we've listed all the things that are working against, no matter who the coach is, you fill in the blank, uh, coach, and it would be more difficult. I think that's one of the reasons Bronco left. And, you know, I don't discount the pay raise, but one of the reasons he was outspoken about the situation that they were in and they needed to get out of it. And so in my mind, you know, you can change coaches all you want, but until these other things around the program are made more conducive to recruiting, then it's still going to be an issue no matter who the coach is. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very difficult job. To coach football at BYU is, uh, is I don't know if it's the hardest job in America, but it's, it's, it's got to be in the top ten as far as this level of difficulty because of all that we've mentioned. And then you've got a fan base that expects wins. And uh, if I were to say one thing to the BYU fan base, and they might not want to hear this, it's that I think they've got to lower their expectations a little bit. Um, maybe not even a little bit, maybe a lot. I just think they've got to realize that some of this stuff is undoable and, and they're not going to have a, you know, a Utah-like season like Utah just had every year. And that maybe if they can put together a special season one in every five years, that should be palatable. That should be uh, acceptable because of uh, all these the situation that they're in. So that I, I would just say that, lower your expectations, and I think you'll be a little bit happier. That sounds like something PK would say. Yeah, I know my wife. And I hope you guys don't turn that into a drop. <laughs> <laughs> so I see you've been on the show before, and you're aware of how it works. <laughs> and I have neighbors that are asking me, did you really say that? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think that um, I think well to go back to the, your point about lowering expectations. I think BYU fan driving the car right now is like they were good enough to go back east and beat an eight-win Tennessee team, and they beat an eight-win USC team. Okay, granted they're both in overtimes. They had the lead against Toledo and South Florida and Hawaii. We'll give them the San Diego State loss, but they need to close out these leads on the road in the fourth quarter. They were good enough to do that. If they'd just done that, sure, somebody would complain about 10-3 and and why they lost to San Diego State, but they'd be a 10-win team, and there'd be a different vibe. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of what I focused on in my season wrap uh, a few days after Christmas is is there was a failure to finish. They just, for some reason, this team couldn't finish. It, I don't have the numbers, but it seems like that was kind of a Bronco Mendenhall specialty. His teams won a lot of close games. And uh, uh, even the year, Kalani's second year, where they went 8-4 and four, or 9-4, and four, they lost 
the four games by a combined eight points. So there's there's a trend developing where they just don't seem to pull out close games like they used to uh, under Bronco. I don't know why that is, um, but but that failure to finish. You're right. If you're right, David, if they had beaten uh, a couple of those or won a couple of those games, especially the Hawaii game at the end, I think there'd be a little bit different vibe. I think there'd be more optimism um, than. Uh, Going into year five with Kalani, and he has the new con- the contract extension and all that. But it's kind of amazing what one loss, two losses can kind of do to a season if they're losses to teams that you think you should have beaten. Yeah, and I don't want to give a pass to the coaches either, just saying, well, we can't get anybody better, so you're good enough, so you have job security, because that Hawaii loss was completely and totally inexcusable. And that third and two call was awful. And they need to be held accountable for that. And that goes on the coaches. Uh, that was just brutal That what they did there. Yep. They needed two yards. They had two downs to get it, and the game's over. And I'm still yeah, irritated about running, it. <laughs> yeah, they had been running Tyler Algier. Right. Just, you know, their offensive line was, was taking over the game. They had a running back that was hot. Yeah, you can point to a lot of things. That was, that was just a, a crazy, uh, strange sequence there, and, and you just kind of wonder what they were thinking. I wonder if anyone, as you talk to people, um, what the strong opinions are on this, because they travel a lot more than most college football teams. I mean, SEC teams don't even want to leave the South, and these guys are flying back east three times, they're flying out to Hawaii once, and those are largely the games that they botched at the end, the cumulative effect of all the travels and independence. Now, I guess this independent schedule, this coming season in 2020, they'll go to the central time zone twice, and they won't go to the east, and they aren't scheduled for Hawaii, so maybe that'll impact. How big a problem is that? I think there's something to that. I think... uh, I think it's a depth factor as well, which ties into that. They, they get tired. They they have to use their main line guys, you know, in for the entire games. Uh, they had very few blowouts. I, I know they had the UMass blowout, but um, that's a, a big part of it. Um, you know, I, I go back to the depth. And then I don't know why. Maybe it's because I cover BYU, and I, that's the only team I've covered the last you know, 11, 12 years, but they just seem to get more injuries, especially injuries to key guys than, than other teams. And that I might just be, you know, not, not out there enough and not following other teams enough, but man, it seems like they sure have a lot of really devastating injuries to their mainline guys. Every year, it seems like they have a couple that, that really, really hurt them. So you're down on them joining a conference? You know, I don't know with just with the with the BYU honor code and what happened last last go round when the Big Twelve was looking and Adam and some schools like Iowa State and Kansas State spoke out and, or at least their government student government leaders and uh, pointed out uh, you know some of the political things that go on at BYU with the honor code and that. But I don't know that that uh, in this day and age of, I don't know, some of the kids, they call it the woke culture or whatever. <laughs> uh, I don't know that it's just that it will happen. Um, uh, maybe the Big 12 is obviously different than the Pac-12. I, I don't think BYU will ever, ever get in the Pac-12. I, I don't, And I think you guys probably agree with me with that. But uh, the, the Big 12 is probably their best bet, and 
you know, who knows, but that's just kind of my feeling. You know, I hope I'm wrong. I'd love to see him get into a Power 5 conference, but but I think it's uh, I think it's a long shot. I know the Iowa State students were having their say. I just think at the end of the day, money talks, and if Oklahoma and Texas want it to happen, then it happens. And Oklahoma is every bit as red a state as Utah. And if Oklahoma and Texas want it, somehow, I think whatever it is, you could run 100 issues out there for the Big 12. If those two want it, I bet it happens. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think those two schools are, are the 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 kingpins or whatever you want to call it, and, and probably making the making the decisions. How was the recruiting then this year? You know, it was uh, pretty lackluster. I guess you would say. I think they're in the seventies. Recruiting is different the last two years now with the kind of the split signing periods. You know, we had the one in December for three days, and now uh, the first Wednesday in February. Another one comes. Um, I think it was big that BYU got a receiver named Cody Epps on the last day. Um, put up great numbers uh, at a really good high school in Southern California, or I think it's Southern California, the uh, modern day. Uh, I'm not exactly yes. sure where it's at. That uh, you would Southern, probably know. That's in Southern um, California. But uh, yeah, they they uh, I think that helped them a lot. But um, there's a couple kids that have committed to them that didn't sign in December. Uh, Bodie Schoonover from American Fork is one uh, that if they could really if they could land in February, I think uh, I think you could call it a, a pretty good class. They got the Romney brother, the younger Romney brother that's out of Arizona that's still undecided. Um, you know, he's obviously an LDS kid that they if they got him. I, I so I think the jury's out a little bit. Um, but I think uh, if they could get these next a couple kids that had committed that are kind of wavering and didn't sign in December, I think I think you could call it a, a pretty good class. How are they going to do with transfers? Because there's been a lot of talk about the weighting of recruiting classes has got to reflect transfers. I know sitting there in the Alamo Bowl blowout with nothing else to do in the fourth quarter and having the two deep or the entire roster in front of me, I counted it up. The youths have 12 transfers, and I think that's becoming common. Obviously, BYU landed two running backs this past year. How are they doing there? Yeah, they're, uh, you know, I haven't heard much from Kalani about it, but Jeff Grimes, uh, before the bowl game, I talked to him, and he, he said, yeah, definitely, we, we'd we like to do what we did last year. We'd like to get one running back, maybe two, out of the transfer portal, uh, especially ones, the fifth-year transfers that are uh, immediately eligible. Uh, we'd like to get probably a receiver. Uh, I'm I'm banging that drum a lot. I, I they need a receiver. They need a, a playmaker type receiver, like the year they got Jordan last week. Um, they lose Oliva Hifo and and um, Town Shumway and Micah Simon, three guys that you know basically got better and better and were pretty good as seniors. So they lose those three. They got Gunnar Romney coming back, and he kind of has been hit and miss. hasn't really re- kind of lived up to the billing maybe that he had out of high school. Um, but other than that, they don't really have much um, at receiver. So I think that's the position where they really need to find a, a guy that can come in and make a difference right away. He's Jay Drew. He covers BYU football for the Deseret News. Jay, thanks for a few minutes this morning. Okay, guys. Thanks for having me on again. There's Jay Drew from the Deseret News. When we come back, the best of the Jazz postgame show is the Jazz rally from 15 down to beat the Wizards. Stay with us. 
Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. All right. The Utah Jazz get it done. Nine in a row. 13 out of the last 14. Tied for second in the West with the Denver Nuggets. I said this on TV last night. Who would like to see the regular season end right now? And the Jazz and the Nuggets, I don't even know how it would work. I, I probably should know what the tiebreaker would be. It doesn't matter because it's not any now. The important thing is the Lakers and Clippers would be on the other side of the bracket. Let those guys play each other in the second round. Jazz and the Nuggets, they'd be on the other side of the bracket. Couldn't see the Lakers or Clippers until the conference final. There is an assumption that either the Lakers or Clippers are coming out of the West. That may well tr- prove to be true, but I'd, I'd like to see it be proven true first. Fortunately, we'll get that chance. The Jazz, red hot right now. Now it's another team with a losing record. You know, the, the Wizards are 13-26, and 26, so they're not a great team. But the Jazz... Didn't have Donovan Mitchell. They were down 15 in the third quarter. Did they have what it takes? And the answer is yes. Offensively, they were still really good, even though they didn't have Donovan Mitchell, who offensively is just, you know, obviously really gifted. Their leading scorer, all of that. But Ingles made shots. Gobert got a bunch of dunks, and Bogdanovich came out just determined to pick up the slack. Just bound and determined. It's like, Donovan's out. i got to have a big game. He was aggressive early. Uh, I thought on the TV broadcast, Matt Harpering was right on it. He was looking for it, expecting it, wanted to see if it would happen, and it did. And uh, Bogdanovich got him going, and then great comeback. A 21-3 run. Just when you thought, oh, they're in some real trouble here. And by the time you finish that sentence, boom, the game's tied at 77. So, good performance by the Jazz. Good win for the Jazz. They're off to Brooklyn. And Kyrie Irving's back. Kyrie had uh, 21 points in 20 minutes. He's been out with a shoulder injury since November 11th. So, he's back. And the Jazz will uh, get a look at him on Tuesday. And then New Orleans on Thursday. The Pelicans played this weekend. And a bunch of guys sat, including Derek Favors and Drew Holiday. But not limited to those two, but including those two. So, uh, who knows... Who knows what kind of shape they're going to be in for that game, what kind of lineup they're going to run out there. And then home to face Sacramento. How far can they get this streak going? Brooklyn would be 10 in a row if they get it. That would give them a shot at 11 in New Orleans, 12 if they bring the streak home for Sacramento. At some point, they're going to lose a game. The other team's going to have an odd game. The Jazz are going to be off. There are going to be some bad calls. I mean, it's got to happen, right? I mean, it's just you don't see a lot of 15-game win streaks in the NBA, so something's got to go wrong soon. Thought it was going to be in Washington the way that was headed, but that's not the way it worked out. All right, let's get to the best of the postgame show as the guys wrap it up as the Jazz beat the Wizards and move into a second-place tie with the Denver Nuggets. You should mention, Houston Houston and L.A. are are half-game back. It's four teams separated by a half a game. Lakers still with a nice little margin there uh, out in front in the top spot, which, which has its own rewards, right? If you're number one, you get number eight, and it looks like there's going to be a big drop-off between seven and eight. Now, there may be a big drop-off five to six or six to seven, but there's definitely a big drop-off seven to eight. So you get that top spot. If the Lakers hold on to it during the second half of the season, uh, you know, it's a bonus. Get you through 
an easy round, maybe not spend a lot of energy, and then get some days off before the second round, certainly that would be an advantage if you've got a 35-year-old superstar who's played a lot of minutes. Why make it any tougher than it has to be? All right, here's the best of the postgame show on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Your Jazz recap here on DJ and PK on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Jake Scott with you. The Jazz won their ninth consecutive game uh, yesterday afternoon against the Washington Wizards, 127-116. They did it without Donovan Mitchell, who missed this game. He's uh, battling an illness, and he's been battling it actually for the past couple of games and then missed yesterday's against the Wizards. But the Jazz still come away with the victory, uh, had a tough time getting stops in the first half, but then absolutely caught fire in the second and scoring 38 points in the third quarter, 34 in the fourth, and uh, coasting uh, to a victory. Let's get you some sound from the postgame. Let's start with the walk-off interview. David Locke with uh, Emmanuel Moutier. Uh, back in the starting lineup for you tonight, which you've been for most of your career. How'd that right. feel? I felt great, uh, but I just approached it like any other game, honestly. Uh, you know, we missing Donovan. Everybody know how big he is to our team. He's our guy. So we all had to make an effort collectively. You know, Jordan was big, too, off the bench. So we just all try to hold it down for Donovan. You have been enjoyable for us to watch <laughs> and you and watch you evolve. How has it been for you? Man, it's been great. Uh, this is the whole reason I decided to come here, uh, learn as much as I can and just at the same time get coached. And Coach Q's been, been great for me. Uh, defensively, I, I've definitely locked in, and I'm going to just try to keep improving. You are 9-0 and since you added Jordan Clarkson uh, and left Miami. What has he brought to the team? Obviously, I can see, man. He As soon as he get in, he, that's an automatic bucket getter. So he can get buckets at any given time, and y'all see that every single game. And, you know, like I said, it just makes another – Another threat out there, especially uh, off the dribble. Uh, he can create his own shot, and that just adds more weapon to us. And what did you guys change in the third quarter that swung this game? Uh, we just made adjustments on the defensive end, and when we got stops, we got out and ran, and I think that's when we had our best. And, you know, Boyan was big, too. He had a, a big first half. Uh, if he didn't have that first half, I don't know how high it would have went, but uh, Joe obviously was making plays for others, too. And Rudy came up big, too, at the end, especially, you know, with those with those two dunks or three dunks that he had. Well, Manuel, thank you very much. By the way, just a note for you, since I haven't had a chance to see you, very impressive how nicely all the New York people talked about you. I thought that was really a <laughs> tribute to who you are as a person, what they all had to say about you. So um, compliments it. to you on being probably more important than a good basketball player. So, thank you. Thanks, man. Appreciate right. it. There's Emmanuel Moutier. He had 14 points started in place of Donovan Mitchell, who was sick. 14 points, five assists, and five rebounds. Really nice game from Emmanuel, who's been playing very, very well as of late. Let's now let you hear from Jazz head coach Quinn Snyder. Contesting a lot of shots. They were making, you know, they made some some good, you know, mid-range pull-ups, but you know, we wanted to make them a little bit harder. And, you know, I think eventually... Um, you know, we were able to do that and contest a little bit better and do everything just in a little different level. What are your thoughts on the guard play tonight? Well, you know, I think this was a tough game in a lot of levels, and they they were going under a lot of screens, and I thought our guys did a good job adjusting where we weren't just playing behind the screen. Um, we were driving the ball downhill, just attacking. That was, you know, all our guys, Emmanuel, um, JC, and Boyan obviously took the ball to the rim. So I thought us attacking the rim more, you know, in the second half was, was you know, a big help. 
that what got Rudy going offensively as well? Because he only had the one opportunity in the first half. Yeah, it, it's hard because sometimes um, the way the game is played, you know, Rudy's given himself up a lot, and he doesn't get those, um, you know, shots. Uh, and that that's where I think our guys are aware. We don't want to. You know, obsess about that, and Rudy's done a good job of being patient with those things. And eventually, um, you know, he was able to get some stuff on the board. Um, he got a couple, you know, after timeout plays, and he finished. And I, I think, ironically, his defense, you know, always, if you're taking the ball out of the net all the time, which we were more in the, in the first half, um, we're able to get out and get to the rim. And then those things are available when our guys are attacking the rim. If we're just dribbling and playing behind screens, you know, they never have to come help off him. And it makes it harder. How, how much of that trouble in the first half was settling into not having Donovan? Um, you know, this is a tough game. You know, it's your first game on an East Coast road trip. You know, it's a matinee game. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I thought Amanda did, did an excellent job. It was it was our whole group, as I said, with, you know, they were they were playing, you know, under pick and roll and really trying to keep us out of the pain. What that forces you to do is take shots. Um, and sometimes taking those shots, particularly if you don't make them, um, or the ball stops. So I thought you, you have to be more determined to move the ball. And I thought our guys got a better feel for that you know, as, it, as, it, as it went on. Obviously, you know, Donovan's you know, one of our key guys, so there's always going to be a little of adjustment, you know, no different than any player. But, you know, I thought our guys did a really good job of kind of absorbing that collectively. Coach, one of the things that stood out is there's five minutes to go. It's a five-point game, Rudy with five fouls, and his composure to get back on the floor and, and close this one out. That's always a tough decision, you know, when you take a guy out at the six-minute mark, um, even if you're going to get him back in quickly. Um, you know, one minute was one of those things you think it was really worth it to take him out. But we have confidence in Tony. And I think sometimes, you know, just a chance to collect yourself, um, even though it's a short period of time, if you sit down, take a breath, and then get back in the game, you know, you're, you're a little more poised. And, you know, Rudy's played, you know, with fouls before. And I think he understands how to adjust, you know, the way he needs to and still be, you know, still be himself and still be a factor. Quinn, over the last 15 games or so, you guys have played really well offensively. Mm -hmm. What's opened that up for you guys, uh, maybe even especially at the three-point line? Well, we, you know, we've been able to shoot. Um, we had a couple guys that I, I think the familiarity with where you get your shots, um, it started for us, you know, we weren't, our spacing wasn't great. So a lot of times, you know, when you might be open, you weren't as open. Um, but it's been a real emphasis for us trying to generate threes. You know, what types of threes are they in transition? Are they under on pick and roll? And they hand off. Like, there's all different ways to get threes. Um, and it's something we've tried to focus on because every guy's a little bit, a little bit different. But um, I think a lot of it is just, you know, we made a few adjustments with certain things. Guys started to get comfortable. Um, you know, and it's we've got a good offensive team. We've got good players, and you're going to have um, tough nights. But you know, we want to make sure we're getting our attempts because you know usually when that happens, the law of averages catches up catches up with you uh, when you got guys that can shoot the ball. Weak connections between JC and Rudy. There, I mean, what's that evolution been like between Jordan? We know he's been yeah. working on getting involved, but especially with Rudy. Right. Well, you know, the, the, there's a stretch where Jordan plays where. 
he doesn't play with Rudy, so it kind of makes sense that that connection is still developing. Um, and then, you know, we've got a number of playmakers on the floor, so we've tried not to kind of just pick and choose um, and kind of let that happen naturally throughout the course of the game. And our, the reason you can do that is because our guys have a good feel for each other. You know, when Joe's going good, he's playing, and then Jordan gets the ball, and the, the, to have them to, to, to orchestrate it in situations out of timeout, that makes sense. Sometimes in the flow of the game, um, they don't need to hear me as much if, you know, we've talked about those things enough and it's it's good for them to be instinctive and I, I think that's what happened with Jordan. Jordan attacked the rim in the second half. <clears throat> you know, he's one of the guys where they're going under screens and he's been so conscious of attacking the rim and playing the right way and it's getting his teammates involved so it just, it doesn't feel right sometimes when you come down and a guy goes under a couple times and, and then you shoot without anybody touching it so um, we had to figure out kind of how to break through that mindset. I was uh, Coach Quinn Snyder as his team came away with one twenty seven one sixteen win against the Washington Wizards. Let's wrap things up with Boyan Bogdanovich. It's just we, we kind of guard the guard difference pick and roll. We lead uh, we let Rudy to to switch on the, on their guys. They hit a, a lot of lot of mid range jumpers in the, in the first half, and then with the with the Rudy presence in a, in the second half was 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 huge for us. What's it like to have so many guys on this team that can handle the ball down the stretch in any situation? And for the opponents too, you know, to, to have these kind of weapons. I mean, it's 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 amazing for us to have a, to have this unselfish group. Like I mentioned, a lot of ball ball handlers, so we can we can pick the guy who we wanna who we wanna attack. And then what's again, whoever steps whoever stepped on the floor tonight gave us gave us something. So. What did you think about overall just the guard play without Donovan Mitchell, especially the first time down the stretch to be without him and what you guys did? I mean, just just mental toughness. We didn't uh, we shared the ball even uh, even on, on the third quarter when we was when we was 16, 16 down. We kind of stick with uh, with uh, with how we played for 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 whole season, even even without without Donovan and and, and, and a huge win for us. Boy, what's allowed you guys to play such good offense, especially the past fifteen games? Our unselfishness and uh, like like I mentioned before, a lot of lot of good ball handlers, the guys that are willing willing passers. And, and then we are we, we have a lot of lot of good shooters around the perimeters and then Rudy, one of the best roller in a, in the leagues, gave us gave us pace and an and, and, and opportunity to attack. Is there any difference in the way you guys are playing right now than maybe the you know first twenty games of the season? It was a lot of lot of new guys, so of course that we need a need a time to, to adjust but we are we are progressing, we are getting better every single game and, and, and then even without like I said, without without Donovan and Mike we we share the ball like like he does with them. All right, welcome back to DC. Um, Bradley Beal, question for you. You obviously have seen him. You played with him. How have you seen his game evolve over the years? What's like sort of the biggest challenge now when you're kind of defending him? I mean, he's 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 he become great great playmaker for for all, all these guys. He was when I was here, he was he was kind of scorer because they had a, they had John handle ball a lot, and now he he become great great playmaker. I mean, he's amazing person, and then an unselfish guy on, on, on a basketball court. You mentioned an amazing person as a teammate. What stands out to you about him as a as a play, as a person, as a leader? I mean, he's just trying to be a leader, trying to help all all the young guys. I was it was it was great for me to have him in a in a locker room for those couple couple months that I was here. There you go. That was Boyan Bogdanovich. He had 31 points to lead the way for the Jazz. 12 of 23 shooting. He actually had 22 of those points in the first half as he really gave the Jazz a lift. 
uh, when they needed it. Uh, next game, the Jazz are going to be at, in action on Tuesday night. They're going to be in Brooklyn taking on the Nets. That game will tip off at 5.30. Pre-game coverage begins at 4.30. There is the best of the postgame show. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines. Stay with us.